0: First of all, um, it's a pleasure to be here today. I'm grateful to the center for organizing this, grateful to Yusuf for, and I look forward to your comments. Grateful to all of you for joining me. As I was thinking about what I was, about today, I realized that in retrospect, I should have made, uh, titled these remarks, Gulf Autocrats and Sports Corruption, A Marriage Made in Heaven. That because Patrick had asked me to talk about the influence of the Gulf, particularly, on global sports governance. Having said that, to do the title of this uh, uh, presentation, Justice, and to create a broader context, allow me to start off with what I think are the two foremost takeaways from the work I've done over the past six years, and that have have direct relevance for the Middle East's impact on global sports governance. The story of the genesis of my writing about the politics of soccer in the Middle East and North Africa, or the story I would like to tell you is that I saw all of this 30 years ago. The political and military manipulation of the game as symbolized in Libya by an imitation, Arc de Triomphe, at the um, stadium in Benghazi, with the words of Gaddafi, the former Libyan leader, that sports and politics a, a sports and arms belong to the people. Or in Syria, where the country's most successful club effectively was a unit of the military. It was called al the military. Or the, absence, the empty stadia that everybody talks about now with the Qatar World Cup in the, in the Gulf, and the absence of, of women. The problem with telling you that story is that I did see that all, I just had no idea what I was seeing. And the major reason for that was that soccer as a sport doesn't, did not, and does not interest me. And that is true today, even six years later, after writing about soccer. What made me connect the dots in 2010 was the response I got to an article that I wrote as a fluke that looked at how autocratic politics was stymieing participation of Middle Eastern and North African uh, national teams in uh, World Cup finals. There was one response in particular by a well-known writer, Stephen Solomon, who phoned me and said, you're onto something, you've got a book, and it was that remark that made the penny drop. It also came at a very fortunate time because I was looking for an alternative way to look at the uh, fault lines in the Middle East and North Africa, and that perhaps would draw in a readership, one that would be different From uh, uh, or differentiate itself from that of other analysts, academics, pundits, in terms of crossing the T's and dotting the I's, but also would uh, draw in a a readership in part that would normally not read this kind of stuff. It's been a learning experience ever since and shaped my thinking and what I think are the two takeaways of the work I've done over over the recent years. The first one is that sports in general and soccer in particular has played a key and consistent role in the political development of the Middle East and North Africa. That is to say, it plays a role in every part of the world and there is uh, a regular, uh, uh, under given circumstances and given intervals, uh, the politics of the sport become, moved to the forefront. I don't think that Anywhere else in the world have you had as consistent and as continuous a, uh, a political role of sports and of football in general than you have had in the Middle East and North Africa. And in that sense, I'm talking about nation formation, nation building, regime formation, regime survival, and the multiple battles that take place in terms of uh, various kinds of rights, social, economic, political, gender, ethnic, and so on. In fact, I would argue that politics was written into the DNA of soccer from the day that it was introduced by colonial powers in the Middle East and North Africa. A majority of the region's clubs were founded with a political association, colonial or anti-colonial, monarchial or republican, religious or secular, expression of ethnic identity, or ideological preference. To, uh, let me just play you a brief um, segment of a uh, documentary that was, I think, produced in 2011, 2012, um, by a well-known documentary maker on the, and you probably know it, uh, uh, on the Egyptian uh, revolt that taught Hosni Mubarak to, uh, to underline just how important football is. Egyptians poured to the streets for one of two reasons a football victory or a revolution. In fact, I would argue that the uh, importance of soccer goes far beyond that. Egypt's foremost club, Al Ahly, with today some 50 million fans, was founded in 1907 in opposition to the Brits and the monarchy. The 1919 revolution that led to the independence of Egypt in 1922 was plotted by the uh, football fans and students on its ground. Its arch rival, and again one of the Middle East and North Africa's top clubs, al-Zamalik, was founded in response as the club of the Brits, their acolytes, and the monarchy. Turkish clubs and Algerian clubs in the 1920s, Israeli clubs, all were founded with a political association. Al-Wejat, the uh, Palestinian club in the uh, refugee camp of, uh, in Amman was long viewed as the Palestinian national team and still is the Palestinian club versus the East Bank Jordanians. Algerian clubs dating back to the 1920s were the, um, the forum of resistance against French, uh, French colonial rule. It was football fans and students who in the 1970s saved the Muslim Brotherhood from a demise at a time of severe repression in Egypt, much like it was football fans and students who formed the backbone of anti-government protests following the 2013 coup in Egypt. It was the soccer team of the National Liberation Front in Algeria that put the Algerian struggle for independence on the map by playing in some 53 countries and winning most of the matches. The team became Algeria's national team. Its anthem is Algeria's national anthem. Soccer is an important vehicle for the Palestinians in Palestine, as well as in Israel, and for the Kurds or Iranian Azeris to internationally project nation, statehood, peoplehood. Many of the anti-government protests in Iran and the defiance of the country's post-revolution social codes erupted on the soccer pitch. In fact, that could have happened again in 2013 had Hassan Rouhani not won the election days before a crucial match against South Korea. The shabiha in Syria, the, the thugs, the, 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 uh, the paramilitary groups aligned with the regime of Bashar al-Assad came out of the uh, football fans around the club in Latakia. The only time that a member of a ruling family in the Gulf was forced to resign under public pressure, pressure was in Saudi Arabia. Stadia and Gulf states are empty in most Gulf states, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, in part because of ambivalence towards the sheikh's clubs, clubs that are owned by members of the ruling family. In fact, you had a debate in uh, Qatar, within the Qatar Stars League several years ago, about whether or not to transfer ownership of clubs from uh, members of the ruling family to uh, publicly owned companies. Sports has become Like elsewhere in the world, a soft power tool. Witness the Qatar World Cup, and the influential and often controversial role played by members of Gulf ruling families and those close to them in world sports governance. The banned Islamic movement in Israel operated its own soccer league between 1986 and 2003. Soccer is an important and effective bonding and recruitment tool for militant Islamists and jihadists. It constitutes a dividing line between those like Osama bin Laden, Hamas' Ismail Haniyeh, and Hezbollah's Hassan Nasrallah, who were fans and or players, as opposed to the likes of Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram and the Islamic State. Even though the Islamic State uses soccer in its, um, uh, in its recruitment uh, materials, and in fact has a very ambivalent attitude towards it. What you see in various t- towns, pr- primarily in Syria, that. Varying between the ages of 12 and 15. Under those ages, boys are allowed to uh, to play soccer. Soccer is also a barometer, if not a indicator, of what is to come. Many people put the um, or date the conflict between Fatullah Gulen, the exiled uh, uh, imam, a priest. Uh, who is in Pennsylvania, whom Turkish President Raj, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan blames for the uh, failed coup in July. Many, many, most people date that back to 2013, 2014, when supporters of Gülen uh, essentially tried to expose corruption within Erdogan's own family, as well as within senior levels of his government. In fact, the conflict was evident two years earlier, three years earlier, when in 2011, Turkey witnessed its worst match-fixing crisis in in its history, with 93 people being, uh, being arrested. And it was a crisis that was about control of Fenerbahce. And it was at that moment also that Gülen, for the first time, admitted, not publicly, but nonetheless, admitted that he no longer was in control of the movement a month before the um, popular revolts erupted in um, 2011, across the Middle East and North Africa, you had a major brawl in Amman between uh, supporters of Faisalia and al wahdad in which uh, 250 people were, uh, were injured. Soccer remains a key platform for the struggle for rights. The role of fans in the popular revolts in the Middle East and North Africa is evidence to that. By 2011, soccer fans in Egypt had emerged, in my mind, as one of the country's foremost social movements, one that General, General-turned-President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has been forced to admit in, earlier this year in his efforts to try and forge some sort of understanding with them. I want to end this part of my remarks in terms of positioning the role of soccer and the importance of soccer and why I think it is, has played a far more, continued, far more central role uh, in the Middle East and North Africa than in um, other parts of the world with a video. And I should warn you that there is foul language in this video. This is what, Yusuf probably knows this, but maybe others in the room know this. This is what a soccer match in Cairo used to look like. This video was produced by um, the Ultras White Knights, which is the militant, uh, highly politicized, street battle-hardened fan group of Zamalik. And I think the key words here are it's all so fucked up here. I cannot breathe. Soccer is an aggressive sport. It's about conquering the other half of the field. It evokes tribal loyalty, and the kind of deep-seated passion, certainly in the Middle East and North Africa, that rivals religion. It offers an adequate architectural environment and the strength of numbers. It's an institution the region's autocrats cannot fully control. They can only attempt to manage it. In fact, what you see is that soccer constitutes both a threat and an opportunity to to autocrats in the region. The threat is this. Um, The opportunity is that if a leader can identify himself with a successful soccer team, that helps him polish his attempt to polish a tarnished image. It also attempts. It also allows him to distract attention from people's grievances. You go back to several years ago when you had a ferry in Egypt. uh, uh, overturned, thousand people were killed, and the front pages were about football. And it at times allows the leader to uh, manipulate national emotions. Think back of late 2009, early 2010, when the Algerians beat Egypt, and it was the Algerians rather than the Egyptians who went to the South Africa World Cup. You had riots on three continents. Now, one area. Impending this picture of the significance of soccer that I did not really talk about is the role of soccer in the battles surrounding women. And these battles are particularly in Saudi Arabia and Iran and they lead into the impact that the Middle East and particularly the Gulf Gulf has had on global soccer governance. At the core of this is the question of how international sports associations balance upholding their principles and values with a realistic assessment of how they can best ensure compliance by member associations. It's an issue that applies as much to whether Qatar against the backdrop of criticism of its labor regime should be allowed to host the 2022 World Cup, or whether collective punishment that penalizes guilty and innocent athletes alike is the way to go in the case of Russia, the stands accused of en- endorsing doping It applies as much, also, to women. The issue in Saudi Arabia is about women's sporting rights in general. In Iran, it really is about only one right, the right to attend male sporting events. Iranian women's sports is otherwise, by and large, well-developed. In Saudi Arabia, it's about stadium stadium attendance, too, but it's about much more. It's about the right to physical exercise and physical exercise education in schools, and the right to compete in any sporting discipline. Attitudes of international sports associations towards upholding women's sporting rights in Saudi Arabia and Iran constitute a mixed bag. In fact, until 2012, both countries got away with restricting women's rights with no risk to their ability to host or compete in international tournaments and no risk of being barred or their reputations being tarnished. 2012 was a watershed in the struggle for women's sporting rights in the Middle East and North Africa, but particularly in the Middle East in several ways. It was the year in which the world soccer body, FIFA, and the uh, International Football Association Board, which sets the rules of the games, opened the door to religiously observant Muslim women to play in international competitions with their hair covered. It was also the year in which the West Asian Football Federation that groups the region's national associations, with the exception of Israel, adopted a resolution that put the right of women to compete on par with that of men. 11 of the Federation's 13 member associations, including Iran, voted in favor. Saudi Arabia and Yemen voted against. The resolution was revolutionary, even if it only had symbolic value, because the Federation doesn't have the, the leverage or the teeth to enforce it. 2012 was also the year in which the IOC for the first time threatened the world's three countries, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Brunei, that had never sent a woman to an Olympic sporting event with a boycott if women were not included in their representations in London. Saudi Arabia avoided the boycott by sending two expatriate athletes. What has evolved since in both cases, both the case of Saudi Arabia and Iran, is a cat and mouse game, in which international sports associations effectively have thrown the towel into the ring, in effect allowing the two countries to maintain misogynist policies. It has also forced human rights groups to rethink how they best can pressure international sports associations to stand up for universal rights. To be fair, despite what I view, would view as a cave-in, attitudes in international sports associations have changed. That is to say, they no longer evade the issue, even if they, at best, following a brief period of taking a stand, now only pay lip service to it. Also, to be fair, the results of the Association's activism is a mixed bag. In the case of Saudi Arabia, it forced the Kingdom to allow women to compete, albeit in only very small numbers. In Rio, the number of Saudi women doubled, from two to four and only in a very limited number of sports that are mentioned in the Quran. In Iran, pressure first appeared to succeed, but then failed, in part because associations like the International Volleyball Federation ultimately backtracked, or in the case of the Asian Football Confederation, either refrained from holding Iran to its promises promises, or publicly endorsed Iranian policies. One other thing has also changed. In the days of Jacques Roger's stewardship of the IOC, there was no contact between the committee and human rights groups. Roger wanted nothing to do with them. That changed with the rise of Thomas Bach. Bach met with the likes of Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch shortly after being elected and has maintained a dialogue with them since. Bach also initially attempted to follow through with the Saudis in the wake of the committee's initial success with the London Olympics. The Saudis' refusal to send women to the subsequent Asian Games, their refusal to allow women to compete in anything but Quranic sports, and their development of the kingdom's first national sports plan for men only, infuriated Bach. It prompted him to, after first requesting restraint on the part of the human rights groups, to ultimately say to them, go for it. Saudi Arabia is yours. Yet in saying that, he effectively dropped the ball. The IOC had no intention of continuously pressuring Saudi Arabia or continuously wielding the stick of a boycott. As a result, pressure by the IOC to force Saudi Arabia to take necessary measures, including introduction of mandatory sports lessons in girls' schools, development of an infrastructure that would foster women's elite sports, and adoption of policies to encourage and enable female participation have lacked the resolve necessary to produce results that go beyond a nominal, quadrennial women's presence. Human rights groups have concluded that in the absence of being able to pressure Saudi Arabia directly, they only have an opportunity every four years to influence the IOC in the final run-up to an Olympic tournament. The pattern is similar in the case of Iran. The International Volleyball Federation initially declared that it would not grant Iran hosting rights as long as women were not granted unfettered access to stadia. In response, Iran promised to allow women to attend the international volleyball tournaments in the Islamic Republic. Similarly, Iran promised the Asian Football Confederation that women would be allowed to attend Asian Cup matches hosted by Iran. In both cases, Iran never stuck to its promise, and it best allowed foreign women to enter. The U.S. Volleyball Federation, on the informal advice of the State Department, decided not to send its woman president to Iran when the U.S. national team played there, even though the vice president of Iran is a woman, and Iranian sports associations have women's sections headed by women. The International Federation earlier this year backed down from its threat to boycott boycott Iran, declaring that gender segregation in Iran was culturally so deep-seated that a boycott would not produce results. The Federation argued that engagement held out more promise. The decision flew in the face of the facts. Gender segregation in volleyball in Iran was only introduced some four or five years ago. The same is not true for soccer, where segregation has been a fixture since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. The AFC, however, went a step further. It not only failed to force Iran to stick to its promises to allow women to attend Asian matches. When Iran was upset in January last year uh, during the uh, Asian games in in Australia, at Australian-Iranian women cheering the Iranian soccer team and mingling with players, the AFC Secretary General defended Iran's right to do so and to do whatever it it wanted within its national boundaries. Just as an aside, and I'll return to this, Susei was fired six months later after I published evidence of his attempt to cover up his possible involvement in corruption. He has since been hired as a consultant by the AFC. In the cases of both Saudi Arabia and Iran, I would argue that a principled stand that sanctions the two countries makes imminent sense, albeit for very different reasons. And that harks back to the notion of balancing adherence to principles with a realistic assessment of what can be achieved and how it can be achieved. I would argue that a firm and principled stand in the case of Saudi Arabia has a chance of success. The reason for that optimism is that Saudi Arabia is in flux. Saudi Arabia's strategy of letting international oil prices drop to maintain market share and squeeze Iran has failed. Shale oil has proven to be resilient and Iran, in the wake of the nuclear ag- agreement, is on the rise. The failure, coupled with geopolitics, and the fallout of the two- 2011 Arab Popular Revolt is forcing Saudi Arabia to do what is long overdue, upgrade its autocracy and diversify its economy. Without discussing the merits of, a, of the Saudi plan formulated in a document called Vision 2030, this entails curbing the raw edges of Puritan Islamic rule bringing more women into the labor market, and offering youth more opportunities, not only in terms of jobs, but also in terms of entertainment. Saudi Arabia's system of government, a marriage between an autocratic ruling family and a Puritan, albeit opportunistic clergy, is under pressure both at home and abroad, and inevitably inevitably will have to be renegotiated. At the same time, Saudi Arabia needs increased foreign investment and needs to polish its tarnished image. One reason why Saudi Arabia came up with the harebrained idea of hosting an Olympic tournament together with Bahrain, men would compete in Saudi Arabia, women would compete in Bahrain. In short, Saudi Arabia is vulnerable to pressure. It demonstrated that with its torturous but ultimate decision to allow women to compete in London in 2012 and in Rio this year. Exactly the opposite is true for Iran. International pressure is unlikely to produce results. Iran is embroiled in a power struggle in the wake of the nuclear agreement and in advance of elections next year. The nuclear agreement has produced for Iran on multiple levels, but the one area where it has yet to achieve tangible results is in the pocket of the average Iranian. At stake in the the power struggle are vested interests. Iran is a country ruled by middle-aged former revolutionaries need to maintain a facade. For the Revolutionary Guards, who play a major role, controlling role in sports, particularly soccer, it's about defending widespread economic interests. One battlefield in Iran is cultural, including sports. It's a battlefield on which it is easy for the conservatives and the hardliners to score a goal. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani has to pick his battles if he wants to stand a chance for re-election women's passive sporting rights. With other words, the right to free access in stadiums is not one of those battles that is crucial to Rouhani's prospects. With other words, the domestic cost of fighting that battle outweighs the cost of a refusal of international sporting associations to grant Iran hosting rights. It would be a different story if the associations would ban Iran from international competition as long as it restricts women's rights much as was the case in Saudi Arabia. As a result, the upshot of all of this is that boycotts make sense in both Iran and Saudi Arabia, albeit for very different reasons. In the case of Saudi Arabia, a boycott is proven to have a chance of success. That is all the true against the backdrop of all the geopolitical and domestic and social issues Saudi Arabia has to deal with. In the case of Iran, it's exactly the opposite. What is at stake is not the chance of success but the integrity of international sports associations in upholding their own principles as well as universal values in the absence of any chance of breaking a deadlock and encouraging progress. All of this takes me to the last part of my remarks, uh, which is the significance that, and that, which is the significance of the Gulf particularly Jordan also, in terms of international soccer governance. Uh, And that's been certainly clear for the past six years since the fateful meeting in late 2010 when FIFA awarded the World Cup to Qatar. FIFA's been witnessing for the past six years crisis after crisis. Invariably, those scandals involved corruption financial corruption, political corruption, and corruption of sporting performance. Invariably, Gulf autocracies were at the center of the financial and political corruption scandals. The 2010 FIFA meeting that awarded Gutter the hosting rights fueled already widespread suspicions of massive corruption of global soccer governance, and the awarding and, and uh, as well as in the awarding of sporting mega-events, particularly the World Cup. At the center of that scandal, the Ghatar scandal, was the now-banned and disgraced Ghatari soccer executive Mohammed bin Hammam. And lurking in the shadows behind bin Hammam was former Ghatari emir Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa al-Thani and his son and current emir Sheikh Tamim bin Hammam, Hamad al-Thani. Bin Amam's successor as head of the Asian Football Confederation and member of FIFA's executive committee, Bahraini Sheikh Salman bin Ibrahim al-Khalifa, brought alongside allegations of failure to act against corruption a very different set of questions to the fore. The refusal of FIFA and its constituent bodies, like the AFC, to seriously look into allegations of human rights, and particularly the rights of some of Bahrain's foremost soccer players. finally, International sports governance is grappling with yet another politically driven crisis related to the Gulf. The suspension of Kuwait by the International Olympic Committee and virtually all international sports associations as a result of differences within the Gulf States ruling Al Sabah family. At the center of the crisis is Sheikh Ahmed Fahad Al Fahad Al Ahmed Al Sabah, a Kuwaiti politician and one of the most powerful men in international sports who has used the IOC as well as the Olympic Council of Asia, which he heads, to fight his domestic political battles and enhance his global sports power. What all of these scandals and crises have in common is far more than a coincidental involvement of Gulf personalities. They all reflect in extremity the problems involved in the relationship between sports and politics. And that is my second takeaway from everything I've been doing in recent years, an inseparable an incestuous relationship that is allowed to flourish un- unregulated and ungoverned, with international sports associations and governments misleadingly denying that the relationship even exists. Gulf autocrats were well served by the denial. In fact, I would argue that the relationship between Gulf autocrats and international sports is a mutually beneficial marriage made in heaven. Certainly, FIFA serves as a pillar of autocracy in the Gulf, as well as in countries in the larger Middle East and North Africa. Application of FIFA rules serves those in power for whom sports and soccer are tools to enhance their international standing, polish their tarnished images, project their countries, create leverage that allows them to punch above their weight, and hopefully manage discontent at home. Bin Imam, like Sheikh Salman and Sheikh Ahmed, Salman's protector, who was elected to the FIFA committee, highlight the intertwining of sports and politics as well as sp- soccer's affinity with autocracy. Men like Bin Hamam, Salman and Ahmad are products of autocracies, whose rise in international sports was paved in the 1970s when Middle Eastern geopolitics spilt onto the soccer pitch. At the time, FIFA threatened but failed to follow through on threats to sanction the AFC for its expulsion of Israel as well as Taiwan. In violation of the principle of a separation of sports and politics. FIFA's failure wrote error politics into the DNA of Asian soccer and helped shape glo- global soccer's coziness with autocracy. FIFA and the AFC's refusal to enact principles enshrined in their charters has had far reaching consequences over the years for global soccer governance, no more so since Bin Amman became AFC president in 2002. Men like bin Amman, Salman, and Ahmad are imperious, ambitious, and have worked assiduously to concentrate power in their own hands and sideline their critics clamoring for reform. Hailing from countries governed by absolutist, hereditary leaders, they have been accused of being willing to occupy their seats of power at whatever price, with persistent allegations of bribery and vote buying in their electoral campaigns. Personal and national ambition, corruption and greed led to bin Hammam's ultimate downfall. Salman, like his relative, Prince Nasser bin Hamad al-Khalifa, Bahrain's sports star, has been dogged by allegations that he was involved in the arrest and human rights violations of scores of athletes and sports officials, accused of having having participated in the mass anti-government protests in Bahrain in 2011. Both men have consistently denied... Any wrongdoing. Allegations that they tried to suppress uh, by, oh, these were allegations that they tried to suppress by intimidating academics and journalists. I've had four battles with their lawyers in recent years. Let me again show you uh, a video. I should warn you, some of these images are graphic. Uh, how do I get back to the screen? Oh there we are. Okay. Uh, yeah. This is an um, uh, ESPN documentary that was taken in, uh, in Bahrain. I'll come back to this in a little while, but let me um, just say that Sheikh Salman, the president of the Asian Football Confederation and a member of the FIFA Ruling Council, was at the time Secretary General of Prince Nasser's committee man who phoned into the uh, television show, and he was head of the Bahrain Football Association at that time. It was his players who were arrested. The the relationship between sports and politics in the Middle East, also North Africa, but certainly in the Middle East, is uh, evident when you look at the boards of of international sporting associations. The Middle East 13 national associations are almost a third of the AFC's 46 uh, member associations. Middle East has seven, um, seven members of its executive council. They include Sheikh Salman. They include Shalabi Mulano, a Palestinian very close to the Palestinian Authority, and uh, President Mahmoud Abbas. They include Mohammed Khalfan al-Arufmeti, the head of the UAE Soccer Association, and the Deputy Commander-in-Chief of the Abu Dhabi Police Force, a law enforcement agency with less than a stellar human rights record. They inc- the committee includes representatives of Kuwait, Lebanon, and Saudi Arabia, as well as the head of the Islamic Football so- uh, Association. Let me just stop for a moment to talk about Mr. Rumeithi. If you thought this was bad, there's a uh, video on, the, uh, on YouTube that dates from 2009 where the brother, the half-brother of the Crown Prince of the, United, of the UAE had a dispute with, I think it was a Bangladeshi businessman. The man was taken out to a beach on the um, outskirts of Abu Dhabi. He was beaten to pulp. Sand was rubbed into his wounds. In the presence of the uh, police chief, to the best of my knowledge, the deputy police chief and the half-brother of the uh, crown prince. And subsequently, they drove uh, uh, an SUV over him, and he miraculously survived. This is who governs Asian soccer governance. You see the same thing also in the Olympic Council of Asia. It's headed by Sheikh Ahmed, a former oil minister who also heads the association of national Olympic committees and is believed to harbor political ambitions in his home country. And has played a major behind the scenes role, role both in FIFA and in um, uh, FIFA AFC uh, politics. 10 of the 40, 41 mem- board members of the uh, Olympic Council of Asia hail from the Middle East. The Saudi, Bahraini, and Jordanian members belong to ruling families, while those from Syria and Lebanon, like their tying Pakistani counterparts, are military officers. Iran's representatives include a former oil minister who headed the country's physical education organization, the state entity that exercises political control of sports, and the head of a state-owned soccer club. Sheikh Ahmed's brother is also a member. The same is reflected in the, in the composition of the heads of um, national football associations in the Middle East and North Africa. Almost half of the West Asian Football Federation's members are headed by members of ruling families again, or people closely associated with them. That includes Kuwait, Oman, Bahrain, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia's association, national association remains tightly controlled by the kingdom's general presidency of youth welfare, that is headed by a member of the ruling Al Saud family. Even after former Saudi Arabian Football Federation uh, President Prince Nawaf bin Faisal became, in 2012, the Gulf's first royal to resign under popular pressure. Members of the Football Federation of the Islamic Republic of Iran are closely linked to Iran's Army of the Guardians of the Islamic Revolution, popularly known as the Pasdaran or the Revolutionary Guards, while many of its clubs are owned by state entities. Similarly, clubs in the Gulf and Syria are frequently owned by members of ruling families and state institutions, including the military and security forces. The AFC's intimate association with politics is further highlighted by former Secretary General Peter Villapin's glowing description of the group's long-standing efforts to build bridges between feuding parties on the Asian continent, Iraq and the Gulf states, North and South Korea, India and Pakistan, and China and Taiwan. Politics was more at the core of the AFC's landmark decision in 1974 at the behest of its Arab members to expel Israel in the wake of the 1973 Middle East War. It was politics that ultimately persuaded FIFA not to follow through on its threat when the AFC refused to succumb in one of its first acts of defiance in the case of Israel by one of the world's body's constituent members. FIFA's failure and AFC's defiance created the basis for a policy by both organizations, adhered until today, that effectively supports autocratic rule by refusing to insist on universal adherence by national associations, regional associations, to the principles, rules and regulations of the global governing bodies. FIFA, in the walk-up to this year's presidential election, requested information from the Bahrain Football Association about the arrest and torture of the soccer players. Pressure by the world talk About body persuaded the Bahraini authorities in 2011 to release the two brothers, but FIFA refrained from investigating the Bahraini association or holding it accountable. In fact, it was evident to me when the FIFA Ethics Committee approached me for evidence that Sheikh Salman had been associated with the abuse of human rights that the committee was determined to come up empty-handed. It did so by the evidence that exists for Sheikh Salman. Is the reporting by the bahrain news agency the bahrain news agency is not a news agency it's the spokes uh, organ of the bahraini government nothing is published and there are a series of articles prince nasser's decree when when the revolt in bahrain broke, uh, erupted the king declared a state of emergency as part of the state of emergency prince nasser declared they're all dissident uh, this was not his language this is my language but not it comes down to the same thing all dissident uh, athletes sports officials needed to be held to account. Sheikh Salman headed the committee that selected the arrest of 150 athletes and uh, uh, um, and, 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 and sports officials. Shiite clubs were expelled from the or or or, or, or disciplined by the uh, Bahrain football Net association all of this is reported in great detail by the Bahrain news agency in a country in which you do not have a free press that however was not evidence as far as fifa was concerned ironically in fact the afc's undeclared yet Effective support of Middle Eastern autocracy played into Israel's cards, despite its expulsion from the group. The policy served to strengthen the region's autocrats, whom Israel, despite an official state of war, long viewed as regimes it could do business with and who were less likely to seek its destruction. Ironically, FIFA and the AFC's handling of Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has come full circle in the wake of the popular revolts. Israel increasingly is finding, as a result, that certainly in Europe, and one reason why Israel is turning towards Asia, that its policies are becoming increasingly unacceptable, and that within the soccer world, keep in mind that since being expelled by uh, the AFC, Israel is a member of UEFA, it's a member of the European um, body, Uh, and it's the European body that has pressured it a number of times in the cases of Palestinian players who were arrested. Some of them uh, went on hunger strike and were at given points in perilous health. You've also had the protests by prominent players. I think there was a statement of 60 players at the time when Israel was, uh, uh, was hosting in a way for Youth Cup. In fact, if you look, it came as far as Last year, the fateful, um, uh, fateful FIFA Congress, in which uh, um, which led to uh, to Zeballos' uh, resignation, it, Israel came very close to being suspended from FIFA. Um, it had a majority vote; it didn't have the vote that w- that was uh, um, that was necessary to to expel it from the group. But it was a warning sign, and again. FIFA was a litmus test. It was a testing ground for a Palestinian strategy that was designed to corner Israel international organizations. you know, International Criminal Court, uh, Palestinian membership of all kinds of UN organizations, FIFA was the testing ground. And it was there that the Palestinians realized that despite the fact that they had tremendous sympathy, they didn't necessarily have the leverage and the numbers to get where they wanted to get mm-hmm. the effective support of autocracy takes on added significance in a world in which the politics of sport sport of soccer has played an important if not a key role in the development of the Middle East and North Africa Middle Eastern autocracy was not alien to the world of global soccer governance, whose secretive ways pockmarked by lack of transparency and accountability have come to to a head with the controversy over Qatar. Little in Salman's career as head of the Bahrain Football Association, former Secretary General of the Olympic Committee, and President of the AFC suggests a willingness to uphold values in the Asian body's statutes, such as the group's neutrality in politics university-accepted principles of good governance and management, or his own electoral promises. Salman passed, Salman's past electoral battle with bin Hamam, as well as his election in 2013 and his simultaneous defeat of Qatar's Hathan al Thawadi in the competition to fill bin Hammam's vacant seat on the FIFA executive committee, mirrored the balance of power in the Gulf, where Bahrain and Kuwait are more closely aligned with Saudi Arabia than Qatar or Oman is. In an electoral message in his first AFC campaign, Salman, a former soccer player, asserted that, that, I believe that too many power and political games are affecting the harmony of Asian football when the only game that should matter is the one taking place on football pitches. As leaders in our sport, we must never lose sight of the fact that we are first and foremost servants of the game at all levels and in all corners of the Asian continent. Salman listed his values as fair play, cooperation, teamwork, transparency, integrity, and passion for the game. Salman's failure to adhere to his electoral promises and values has contributed to the failure of both the AFC and FIFA to put behind them the worst corruption and mismanagement scandal in the history of world soccer, even if a number of non-Middle Eastern Asian soccer executives have been sanctioned. In fact, a cleaning of the AFC's house in line with recommendations of an internal audit of the Asian group's finances in 2012 that toppled bin Hammam, who was in 19, 2013 banned for life from involvement in soccer, could have helped spark badly needed reform of the world body. The audit conducted by Cooper suggested that the AFC under bin Hammam's mismanagement may have been involved in money laundering, tax invasion, bribery, and busting of U.S. sanctions against Iran and North Korea. PwC warned that it is our view that there is significant risk that the AFC may have been used as a vehicle to launder funds and that the funds have been credited to the former president, Bin Imam for an improper purpose, money laundering risk. The AFC may have been used as a vehicle to launder the receipt and payment of bribes. The audit questioned a $1 billion master rights agreement between the AFC and World Sports Group, negotiated by Bin Hammam without putting it out to tender or financial due diligence. My reporting on the audit earned me a libel case in Singapore that I won in 2014 in a landmark case that changed Singapore court procedures and enhanced the right of appeal in libel cases. The AFC and Salman have refused to act on the recommendations of the audit, let alone get to the bottom of the allegations. The only action they took was the firing of AFC's Secretary General Suse, as as mentioned before, and that only after I published. Finally, what I want to do briefly is dwell on the controversy surrounding Qatar's hosting of the World Cup. I would argue that the debate about Qatar is skewed by arrogance, prejudice, bigotry, and sour grapes. That is not to say that there are not serious questions about the success of the Guttery bid. The debate, however, is not truly about the values it professes to defend. Issues of climate, size and legacy are to me expressions of unease with the reflection of a more global shift from east to west on the soccer pitch. The jury is still out on technology that Gata was having developed to alleviate the oppressive summer heat and no longer necessary given that the games have been moved to winter. Qatar spent a multitude on its World Cup in comparison to its competitors. This wasn't a bunch of oil-rich Arabs dressed in pajamas with tea towels on their heads and dollars coming out of every core of their body. It was like all bids, the result of a rational cost-benefit analysis. Unlike its competitors, Qatar's reason for bidding was not simply soft power. It was a key element of its foreign and defense policy that makes it far more valuable. Keep in mind, Qatar is a tiny country uh, sandwiched in between Saudi Arabia and Iran, both of which it sees as potential threats. And it looked at Kuwait 1991, where Kuwait, the Kuwaitis were, were able to go to the casino in Cairo while the rest of the world liberated their country. And that was the kind of soft power uh, sports, not only sports, it's part of a palette of soft power tools, but also sports, and particularly soccer, was supposed to play. I'm a Johnny come lately to the conclusion that Qatar bought the World Cup. Fact of the matter is that bribery and corruption in World Cup bids was standard practice in FIFA. Qatar was unlucky that it was its bid that helped spark the soccer governance corruption scandals. The question is how one best extracts positive change in dealing with the guttery case. Depriving Gutter of its hosting rights, which is unlikely but remains nonetheless a distinct possibility, is unlikely to produce social or political change. On the contrary. Fact of the matter is that most sporting mega events leave a legacy of white elephants and debt. A recent video clip illustrated dilapidated, discarded facilities in cities like Sarajevo and Athens that have hosted Olympic Games. I would argue that the Qatar World Cup holds out the potential of change. There already has been change. Too little, too slow, but nonetheless. Qatar today is more or less the only Gulf state to grant entry to its foreign critics, human rights activists, labor union operators, and journalists. There have, of course, been a number of incidents in which journalists have been detained and activists having their visas or residence permits canceled. Nevertheless, there is an active dialogue with groups like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the International Confederation of Trade Unions. Human rights reports that take Gutter to task on the circumstances of workers' rights are now being launched at news conferences in Doha. On paper, Several Qatari institutions have significantly enhanced standards for the working and living conditions of migrant workers and efforts to combat widespread corruption in the recruitment process. Implementation is often the issue. There is moreover a tension between Qatar's need to act swiftly to convince its critics of its sincerity and domestic constraints that stem from fear as a result of the country's demography. Qatari's account for 12% of the population, to put this very graphically, prior to the refugee crisis in Germany, you had 19% of the population were foreigners as opposed to 88% in Qatar. Imagine what would be the case if a German had to go down in the morning and buy his coffee or his bread for breakfast in Urdu or Arabic. Now granted, the Guttery doesn't go down, he sends an Urdu speaker down, but nonetheless, you would have a revolution. That is the demographic deficit you're dealing with in Qatar, and that is what makes these issues not simply an issue of labor rights, but issues of existence. It's also the reason that, that, from my perspective, giving the process of change a chance of success and of moving forward is far more important than depriving Qatar of its hosting rights on the grounds of justice having been done. Thank you very much.